Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. I got to read these books back in the winter. They were sent to me as galleys and agreed to do this event, put it on the calendar. I reread both the books at the beginning of April in the middle of quarantine, feeling and started like I hadn't been able to read. I hadn't been able to focus, especially a Mm -hmm. novel. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. reading these two back to back, I was the most escapist, thrilling, it is still is the most <laughs> thrilling thing that I've done in months. Um, and I've been recommending your books to everyone. So I want to start just in case there are people joining us today who haven't read your books. Maybe we'll start with Emily and you can tell us a little bit what your book is about and then Rupi as well. Oh, hi. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still figuring out like how to best look at the screen because it's so it's like too overwhelming to look at the one with everyone. And so I want to just have it be like, a, 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 whoa, oh my God. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to like act like we're sitting next to each other and just make like imaginary eye contact with you stuff. Um, <laughs> yes. so, um, so Perfect Tunes is about a uh, mother and a daughter and the mother's name is Laura and the daughter's name is Marie. Um, the, at the, as the story begins, uh, Laura has not yet become a mother. She's 22. Um, she's just moved to New York City to make it as a singer-songwriter. But her life gets kind of derailed when she meets and falls in love with this guy, Dylan, who is uh, much more famous and successful, sort of like quasi-rock star. Um, and uh, in very, very short order, like they they fall in love or at least she falls in love with him. He, uh, he, it's like a minor spoiler, but it says it in the, um, in the flap copy. So I feel like it's okay to talk about it. Um, he dies, she finds out she's pregnant and, uh, decides to have a baby because she's like, Oh, I'm so in love with this person who died. Um, great idea to have a baby, even though I'm 22 and have no money and have no support system um so she uh yeah so the rest the rest of the book is sort of like the consequences of that decision um and by the end Marie is uh like a point of view character and we see what her relationship with her mother is like from her perspective when she's 14 and hates her mom um yeah I think that's I think that's pretty much it um so and it's and it starts in 2001 and it ends in um, 
um, so is it, I go now? Yes, you can go. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to, I'll be really aggressive. Um, Rufi, you may speak now. All right, thank you. Um, so my novel, The Knockout Queen, is my third book, and it's um it's about a friendship between two kind of unlikely friends. Bunny is a volleyball star in high school. By the end of high school, she's six foot three, two hundred pounds, um, and her dad is a really prominent real estate agent in town. And then her next door neighbor, Michael. Um, moved to town because his uh, mom got sent to prison and works at Rite Aid and has a secret grinder account. And on the surface, you wouldn't think that they have very much in common, but in fact, they kind of have everything in common. And so it's about their friendship, but it's mainly about Bunny winds up doing something kind of on impulse um, that then they have to sort out all the the consequences for and and kind of understands how to hold each other accountable. So it's it's very much... um, it's a, it's a book about the body and about um, wanting things that you wish you didn't want and loving people that you wish you didn't love and doing things you didn't mean to do. Um, and just, you know, the extent to which we're, we're animals, like flying by the seat of our pants, basically. Great descriptions, you guys. Very accurate. Um, I would love to hear from both of you about the origins of these novels. Um, I think that fiction often springs the like first, the first image, the first kind of like what Joan Didion calls the images that shimmer around the edges kind of, they can come out of nowhere. They can be sparked by a conversation, someone you see on the street, a newspaper story. And I'm wondering if the first part is, can you remember? Cause I, I'm sure I couldn't remember, but can you remember what that first impulse was? And then when did you know you had a book? Like at what point as you started to become intrigued by each of these stories, did you know that there was actually something there? Um, Rufi, why don't you go first? Because I went first last time. Um, Well, I had had written a novel 10 years ago ago called Bunny Lampert that was really just interconnected short stories in which she was a peripheral character. Um, so it's sort of this negative space portrait and none of the plot of the two books is the same, but she was really big and strong and did was a boxer. And so um, she's just been in the back of my mind for a decade, you know. Um, but I know that the very first seed of of thinking about her was I was at a party in Brooklyn at someone's apartment. I didn't even know who it was anymore. And there was a girl boxer there who was really, maybe she was just really messed up on drugs or she had like really intense traumatic brain injury, but she had this kind of like little guy boyfriend who was like her tender, her like kind of keeper. And, um, I found just being around her. I mean, I don't even think I had a full conversation with her, but I found the existence of her to be like a very compelling and troubling. And I kind of couldn't let go of it. And so then when it became a book this time was when that idea kind of merged with, we were trying to move and we were trying to buy a house and every single house in this town we were trying to move to seemed like it was represented by the same realtor. And I just thought, what would it be like to be that guy's daughter? And so then I sort of imagined like, well, what if Bunny came from that family? And that was her background. And that's sort of where where the book started. 
Um, that's so interesting to know. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's haunting. Having, having read The Knockout Queen, thinking that there was a... I, when you were talking about that woman that you met at the party, thinking that there's like a real life antecedent to Bunny, um, that makes my chest tense. But um, yeah, I have some, we have follow-up questions, but let's hear from Emily. We can just kind of bounce back and forth. Um, oh, um, so I um, have always been really interested in knowing what, um, my mother was like before she became my mother. And there's, um, there are some sort of, uh, primary, primary texts that I can refer to, like old pictures of her. And I, I've like seen a diary that she kept when she was like in her late teens and, and early twenties. Um, I wish I'd talked to my grandparents about it more before they died. Um, but she's because like she's not a reliable source of intel on what that person was like um she's like let little bits and pieces escape over the years but like it's it's very very hard to get her to talk about what her life was like when she was a young person even though I think her life was really interesting and I've never written about it directly because that would really 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 piss her off um so I, I had to find a way to write about my mother where I wasn't just writing about my mother. Um, so I had to create this character who's nothing like her, but then sort of graft the relationship onto her. So I really started with the teenage girl stuff because I know what it's like to be a teenage daughter of a mother and like be fighting with her all the time. Um, but I don't actually know what it's like to be the mother of a teenage girl. I don't, don't know what it's like to be someone who has their sort of like dreams crushed by having a baby, except for in the like very, very lucky sense that like we all do. Um, both of us have babies. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that was, um, that was, I guess, I guess the germ of the story. And I did a whole first draft, um, that I've talked about a lot, um, which I still can't really believe existed where, um, there's the teenage girl character. Um, she wanted to know what her mother was like before she was born. So she found a way to go travel back in time, literally, uh, via ayahuasca trip. And I threw that whole draft away because it turned out to be like very bad. And I'm not qualified to write, um, you know, sci-fi or like whatever genre it is where there's, it's just the world, but there's one magic detail. Um, and I don't like those books generally. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the books where it's like, where it's like, uh, I feel like a bitch for like naming one, but the first one that popped into my head was the particular sadness of lemon cake where it's like, it's just the world, but this girl can like bake cakes that make people cry. Um, and it was like a huge bestseller. I don't know. There was sort of a fad of books like that for a while. Anyway, I did not write one. I'm not qualified to write one. And, uh, I threw it all away and then came up with like something else, which is this. And just when did you know with the, like, when did you, so it starts with Marie, you, the germ of the story started with Marie because it's what you knew. And I'm guess I'm wondering when you knew it really could be a book. It has a pretty unique structure insofar as you are jumping through time and you've focused each section on different, I guess, motherhood episodes, right? There's like conception and there's a lot of maternal trauma that we can talk about all the first time the baby is sick and you are sick and 
Um, but like, when did you, how, I guess I'm wondering like how long we all write in the dark with like a good idea. And then at a certain point it switches into, oh wait, this is a book. This will hold its shape. Um, I think I had to, I think I finally of the, of the non travel draft had like two scenes that I was really sure of. And then I felt confident that I could arrange everything else around them. And even if some of the other stuff was like weaker, those scenes were good enough to like justify the existence of the rest of the book. I have this really strong memory of um, my friend, Jamie Addenberg asked me to read work in progress at an event that she was doing for the paperback launch of like one of her books. I don't even remember which one because she was one of those really prolific authors who like writes a super great book every two years. Um, yeah. And I think it was St. Maisie because that, that would make time, make sense with like the timeline of the stuff happening. Um, and I read a version of the scene where um, Laura, the main character, has uh, sex with Dylan for the first time. And I remember, and just like, I mean, obviously, if you read a sex scene out loud, people are going to be very, like, receptive to that, usually, because you're, like, doing something sort of brave. Um, but I just, I felt like, I felt like I wasn't sure where I was going with it. And I knew it wasn't, like, didn't have enough heft on its own to just be a short story, because you, like, it would be, like, a two-page short story about having sex with someone who has a perfect dick. Um, but I, but the response to, um, not that that's not a valid, I don't know. Um, yeah, the response to that was like, okay, like I should keep, I should keep going with this and, and everything else that's around it. And then the other scene that was like, that was the first Marie scene where she throws the phone at her mom, because I also threw a phone at one point at my mom, which is like the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Well, Still. first of all, you're that's lucky. The worst you're, thing. Oh, God. Yeah, you're lucky. That's the worst thing <laughs> yeah. that you've ever done. But when that section opens, and really hard. <laughs> like, yeah. Anyway. I mean, I um, I'm pregnant with a girl right now, and when that scene opened, I was like, "Fuck, fuck, fuck, fuck!" It just it, it's the way it is. It's so it real. Is. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you've been a saint since then so <laughs> mom would probably argue that uh writing in my first book about her in the completely callous way that I did um might be worse than throwing the phone oh, right. uh, but, yeah. you know that's maybe a debate that my mom can have and I can have later on like texts I really hope <laughs> that Emily's mom is watching right now <laughs> she, might, she might not be she's she's seen like she's already been to like four of these so I feel like that's as many as anyone could really be and to, like expected to anyway sorry I feel like I'm let's talk about Rufy's book for a little yeah, bit yeah no and I have a similar question for Rufy which is so you start with Bunny you tie her to a place, a very specific place, um, a very specific side of Southern California that I am familiar with and rarely see in fiction. But I feel like the spine of the book is this friendship. And so when did Michael come in? And when did you know, again, the shape of this book, that there was something there beyond Bunny? Well, so I was trying to write the book from Bunny's point of view or in third person, like close with her. And it just wasn't working because she didn't have enough perspective to experience what was happening as anything other than like pain. 
kind of. Mm -hmm. It was because what's happening is so traumatic for her. And so she can't, um, she can't give you the nuance. And she also is frustrated by herself and hates herself a lot. And so she's not really able to render everything that's charming and wonderful about her. So I kind of knew that I needed a focalizer character, you know, like there's lots of books that do this, like, you know, The Great Gatsby or Sophie's Choice, where you have this larger than life character being talked about by someone who's like more part of our terrestrial world. And so I knew I needed such a person. But when I got the idea for Michael, it was really like all in a flash. And he kind of came with that backstory and that voice. And it was really um, like propulsive. And the book sort of just took off and started writing itself. Whereas I had, it had been in like a daily struggle for over a year at that point. And so um, that draft was really fun and exciting to write because um, Michael is just so bad. He's so mean and so funny. And so it's like, it's like someone giving you permission to be like your, your meanest, funniest self. And he, I mean, he's also so much smarter than all the adults present. I do. I see what you're saying now, how for Bunny, there's a, a sense without giving anything away of tragedy. And you can't really be the voice of your own tragedy your own because tragedy. you're just suffering and yeah, spiral, circling the circling the drain. And um, but in the books that you're talking about, the friend is usually like I think there would have been a more conventional novel, which is like the female friendship where it's someone who looks up to Bunny, someone who idolizes her. But you chose to write from a really what I think is a complicated point of view, which is a gay teenage boy who is living in a very class conscious beach town. He's at the bottom end of that strata. And he's figure. I mean, he, his story separate from Bunny is wild. And so you knew that you were ready to take on his desires and all of like his struggle he just came to you in a flash. I mean, I, well, or, or I were mean, you interested in in writing about a gay teenage boy? Like, did you know you had that in you? I mean, I. So when I first started writing Michael, I knew the the first part that was there for me was the domestic violence component of his family background, and part of it was because so much of the book is a meditation on violence that I knew that all the characters needed to have violence like deeply sewn into them. And so that's where I started. But Michael just sort of, I mean, so when I say he came to me in a flash, I'm not one of those people who believes that it's coming from some other astral realm or it's like, you know, some magic idea ghost that's then telling the story and coming up with its own ideas. For me, when that happens, it's because it's like a deeply repressed aspect of self. And so um, sure enough, he sort of just started bringing up pieces of my own biography. So I was very confused about my own sexuality and would meet women to have sex with online, but still kind of be like, pretend I was straight to everybody. And so when it's really more of like a, in a lot of ways, Michael's the most autobiographical character that I've ever written because I generally dislike writing autobiographical things. Um, but so it's, it's a little bit more of just like a gender switch than, uh, a complete, like uh, objective interest in the, in the gay male experience, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it does make sense. That's it. I mean, that's exactly what I was wondering. I was one, I, because you write it so honestly and authentically. Um, and I would have guessed that he came first. It makes bunny is like, she's so breathtaking and she takes up all the space on the page, but I would have guessed that he came first because he felt so close, close to your heart. Um, and so again, I'm going to be careful about spoilers, but there in each book, Emily already talked about hers a little bit, but there's like, there's a childhood trauma. And I feel like your books are about the kind of blast radius of that trauma. And I'm wondering if you guys were, because these aren't coming of ages, right? Like a, com a coming of age sort of like ends with, a, ends with a shift, but doesn't really investigate the damage further down the line. Um, and I'm wondering what you guys think about that uh, assessment that I made. And also if you were conscious of that while you were working that you were writing beyond the coming, the sort of coming of age genre. I mean, Emily, let's start with you. In your case, your book does kind of a 180 when Dylan dies. You think that it's gonna be about one thing, which is like trying to fuck the guy with the perfect dick who's a absolute living nightmare. And the book entirely changes course and you're into a book about motherhood. So were you aware that you were kind of skewing away from the coming of age genre? I, I guess, I, you know, um, I wasn't really think I wasn't really thinking consciously in terms of genres or even what the whole book would be like when I was done with it. I, I, I've only ever outlined in retrospect, <laughs> um, which is probably not the best way to go about it. Um, but it, to me, it seemed more like the, um, the, the sort of like big ideas that were animating the book were about um, like the, the good and bad aspects of fame um, and, mm. um, and sort of, if you, and sort of what you do if you are a talented person and you, and you kind of, in a sense, consciously or, or subconsciously have a choice about whether you are going to do everything that it takes to pursue, like, the highest level of public recognition of your art that you possibly can. Um, and, you know, like, we've all had to deal with that even on some tiny, tiny scale. I feel like everyone who has any sort of public way of being in the world has probably thought about like, okay, like where is the line for me? And whether she's aware of it or not, what, what Laura is doing by choosing to step away from the spotlight, um, even though it probably doesn't feel 100% like a conscious choice for her, is like, protecting herself in a way from some of the negative aspects of, you know, you know, she's sort of seen what, um, seen what fame can do and maybe she's choosing not to do it. Um, but it's very, but it's also very like conflicted and, amb and ambiguous 
because, you know, she's never like purely happy for her good friend who steps into her sort of role and like goes on to like tour with this band. Um, it's, it's not as straightforward as that she feels jealous, but it is like, it's so clearly like a path not taken. Um, you know, and, and toward the end of the book, it's, it's possible that she's like ready now for what in her, you know, mid twenties, she like definitely would not have been ready for. I mean, she wasn't ready for motherhood either, but like she really wasn't ready to stand in front of an audience and like be herself, you know? Hmm. I, I wonder, does Laura know, I think because she's in the kind of throes of motherhood, which doesn't allow a lot of bandwidth for you to think about or do anything else. But the way that you wrote her, it felt like she underwent such, she compromised so much. She And it wasn't just this career, but it was this sort of like lust for life, lust for men, and lust... Um, this sense of possibility that she, she's, I mean, she sacrificed her youth she, in her 20s. And yet that's not her story. She's not sitting there with a 14-year-old daughter meditating on everything that she lost. She kind of is just dealing, like the day-to-day keeps her so busy and she is one foot in front of the other. But you seem like you were really aware of the compromise that she made. Um, I mean, it's, it, that part of the book is definitely very drawn from my, um, you know, just like what my like day-to-day headspace has, has been like for the past five years or so. Not that it hasn't also been, you know, awesome to have two kids. I don't <laughs> scare you too much. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really, I, I mean, I do feel like my husband and I, like, you know, we're, so we're, we're both writers, which is a really poor choice, um, in, a, in every respect, um, and, uh, we were sort of like, we, we just, we got, we got a little, we got a little overconfident, I think, like, we were like, oh, you know, we have one child, we're, we're capable of doing that, like, why not two, how much, how much worse could it be, really, um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of, um, Laura's inner monologue, like, meditations on, like, when she, like, sees the, um, flowers in the planter outside someone's beautiful, um, Park Slope brownstone she's sort of like admiring the flowers and thinking and then thinking like someone has to water those like someone had to like pick those up from like the garden supply store and like plant them in that planter oh forget about it like that's that's her headspace and it's really inimical to uh, any kind of artistic pursuit like when you get to the point where you are exhausted by the existence of someone else's flowers um <laughs> that's that's more like that's my that's where I'm coming to you from today (laughs) I mean I can't wait can't (laughs) wait to have a second child okay um so Rufy in your case (laughs) yeah it's it's gonna be great um Rufy in your case the the big climactic traumatic 
not air quotes, it is traumatic, I'm taking those away, um, moment of the book comes about halfway through. And then again, that's something that I think in a more conventional novel would happen towards the end and there would be more buildup to it. But what you seem to be really interested in is the repercussions, how it alters the course of these two children. They are ch children's lives. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you ever moved around, right, that big incident, and also when you knew that it was important to get to later in life for them, that you show that. It definitely was not like a static vision from the beginning that it was going to be shaped in this way. I mean, I think that I've always been, I, I think one of the reasons I became a novelist is because I actually did not understand stories very well. And so found them like intriguing and mystifying. And I was like, well, what is the difference between a story and a, a series of events? And how do you tell that things cause each other, you know? And like, what does that mean? And wh what is the beginning and what is the end? And what does that mean? And so since none of that stuff is obvious to me, plot has always been a real challenge. <laughs> um, and I've always tended to be much more, I think because I, I come at things from a very character oriented place, I'm always very interested in what events in someone's life made them into the person that they are later. So in this book, I was really purposefully trying to understand how someone makes a choice that changes their life. And what is the buildup to that? And what are all the dominoes that have to be in place to just take someone and push them over into a different life than the one they would have had. Um, and so I was really thinking that I was only going to write kind of up to and then the immediate fallout from that climactic event. Um, and then I realized that it wasn't over. Um, mm. And maybe that's like, for me, the end is always about 30 years after the climax of the book. And so I, I kept kind of having to move I kept having to make them older in order to get at more of their future. And then finally, like, was able to find um, the end of the book. And I think in a certain sense, it, I should have known from the beginning because I had imagined Bunny Lampert all the way, you know, through her 30s and 40s. And so, of course, I would kind of want to go there. But that and that leads me into my next question for both of you which is um your endings are just like punches to the stomach oh knockout queen that's clever punch see um <laughs> and i i guess i was wondering if you wrote to it linearly or if those are things that had to be readjusted later i mean these are both such emotional novels and again i'm ta i'm talking about clear cut trauma that happens in Emily's case early in the book and in Rufy's case in the middle of the book. But the endings themselves are like are more powerful in a way. And I guess I'm just I I was wondering, and you pretty you pretty much answered it, Rufy, but like when you knew the book was done, when it was just so sad that you were like, this has to be the end. Well, I think that that's another thing that interests me is like, well, what, what do you need to have happen in order for it to be over? Like, right. what is it, the thing that you're trying to accomplish that will mean that it's over? And I couldn't figure it out. And I wrote so many different endings to this book. And finally, I figured out that what had to happen in order for it to be over 
was that Michael had to tell her she didn't have to be good and that he mm-hmm. would still love her and she would still exist and be beautiful and be bunny if she was bad. And that that was how he would let himself off the hook too. And so once I wrote that scene and got him to the point of saying that, then I knew that that was the close of the cycle that had kind of brought them together. And Emily, in your case, I think the end of the book was so heartbreaking to me because once you've introduced the adolescent character, you realize that we just don't control the stories that our children tell about us at all. And you've spent an entire book with Laura and everything that she has sacrificed. Um, And it really doesn't matter at all insofar as how her teenage daughter sees her. Now, of course, we hope that changes once those teenagers pass into adulthood. But I mean, I guess, when did you, when did you know you had the end? Or you were at the end? When What Rufi said is the right question. When did you know it was, what did it take for it to be over? Um, you know, I wanted to have, uh, like, a moment where the reader is, like, allowed to be sad, I guess, um, just because um, I feel like I'm always sort of craving that when I read when I read a novel like I, I really once I get into like the, the back like you know this this part of it I, I'm like can I cry <laughs> you know <laughs> um, so uh, ideally one wants to cry um, so I knew so I just had to have something happen that could yeah you know, be a little cry for me. Yeah, the catharsis, exactly. Um, but, and then I, I don't know, I, I had tried to go beyond the sort of, um, some like sort of ambiguous moment where the, where the book ends and, and be more definitive about it. Um, but it just felt like, I don't know, I feel like there are a lot of books, again, not to talk shit about other books, I'm not the master of books, um, but I, a lot, a lot of books that I read, um, feel like there's like a little bit of fan servicey padding at the end. And it's like, you could have just stopped like, you know, uh, like two chapters ago, you don't actually need to do like there. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm not even having a specific book in mind as I'm saying this, but I feel like I've read a, a few books lately that have, um, like, uh, the finale, the the series finale episode of Six Feet Under, where you see how every character and it dies, and it's like, okay, like you, you like leave the reader something to imagine. And in my case, I probably erred on the side of perhaps too much to imagine, but I definitely didn't want to like get to the end of everyone's story. Like in some ways, at the end of Perfect Tunes, Laura's story is, I really hope for her, just beginning. Like the one upside of having a baby when you're 22 has got to be that like you're 40 and you're like okay what's next (laughs) absolutely I mean there's like that little bit of jealousy where I'm like oh my god she has her whole life she has her youth back um but I do think that you're right and with like that uh, some books you read and it's like you saw you see the note from the editor that they need to make the conclusion somehow more satisfying that they need to really arrive at point B from point A and I think both of your books maybe what I was feeling 
about both of them is that they they stopped in a perfect point for you to wonder for to, to be left in the middle of your own sadness whatever these books bring up for you whatever you're mourning and to wonder what's going to happen to these people still um and i thought that was so masterfully masterfully it was really well done um and i think i i mean i have a couple more questions and i know we're going to do question and answer but i assume that other writers show up to these zoom casts um or people that are trying to write and you guys are a wealth of knowledge because you have both written three books this is your third book and i'm wondering how the experience of writing this book was specifically, but also how it changes every time. I, if it does, was this harder or easier? And um, see, someone was gonna ask that. You got writers out there. Like for those of us who are not on our third book, will you please tell us how this goes? Thank you. <laughs> um, well, you want to go? No, no, no. You've written I, a lot more books actually than I have. So, um, well, so as some sort of self fulfilling prophecy, I guess I had heard that it was your statistically your fourth book that was most likely to get published, and so I heard that, mm. and I was like, "Dang, I better start writing books now." Mm. You know, I before I'd been like, "I gotta live a little and like save time," and then I was like, "No, I gotta start practicing. I need to write a bunch of crappy books." And so that's what I did. So The Girls from Corona Del Mar was my fourth novel that I had written. Um, and then there was Dear Fang, and then there was another book that I shelved, and then there was The Knockout Queen. And so um, writing-wise, it feels like I'm finally kind of starting to understand what novels are and how they work and where all the gears and levers are. Um, it's... I just love novels. I love the, they're so big and baggy and messy and there's room for just, you can just shove all sorts of crap in there. Um, and so from that point of view, I feel like the more books you write, the more joyful it is because you are gaining mastery over a form, you know? And so you're like, cool, I was able to do this thing I didn't used to be able to do. Um, but, and then in terms of publishing, I mean, I think that that whole publicity process is a lot easier because it's just less, you know, out of body, like, oh my gosh, this thing that I've always wanted is happening and it's so big and it feels much more like it's like a real event in the world and it's like more right-sized. And so, um, I found that a lot easier this time too. So Girls from Corona Del Mar was your fourth novel, plus you wrote a a novel in your spare time about Bunny Lamper and a novel that was shelved. So you've written like a million books. No, I mean, I think, well, so the Bunny Lampert novel was one of the ones I wrote before The Girls from Corona Del Mar. There you um, go. So that's but how still. long. It, interestingly, Aunt Dee Dee, who's also a character um, in The Knockout Queen, is from an even older work, um, the, the second novel I ever wrote. Um, and so she just has been kicking around in the old noggin too, I guess. Do you ever look at those manuscripts? I haven't in years. I mean, I know there, the, the second one I knew was so weird that I never even tried to market it. It's not that I thought it was bad. It's that I thought no one is ever going to buy this or read this because it was like a, 
split page where the top half of the page was a sci-fi novel being written by a 15-year-old boy. And the bottom half of the page was the very messy divorce that his family was having. And so you could kind of see how his fictional world he was building was related to his experiences in his family life, kind of. But I didn't, I, I mean, trying to pitch that in a letter to an agent, I was like, I don't even know how to try, so I'm good. I mean, I think you just pitched it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, Knopf, someone will be on the phone with you shortly. Um, <laughs> and then Emma, Emily. Enough, but definitely like, you know, Frey Wolf or, you know, yeah. baby <laughs> um, Emily, what about you? And you've switched genres, so to speak, um, from oh. nonfiction to fiction. But how, how was this book, writing uh, this book? Well, it's gotten easier for me to write fiction and, um, and harder for me to write memoir and nonfiction. I had sort of thought when I finished this book, I would go back to writing essays. And it's just gotten so much harder for me to uh, unselfconsciously do do the thing that used to be the thing that came very naturally and easily to me. So um, I'm sort of waiting for it to get easier again. And if it doesn't, I guess I'll be uh, forced to embark on another novel because I have to be writing something um for myself well, I mean, why why do you think that is why do you think that it's shifted for you is it is it motherhood is it you not being 25 anymore like what I, I it's definitely all of the above but it's also um you know I really um I've done my I've done my time in the uh the trenches of the the internet wars um and uh and really my first and my first book um I haven't reread it lately um so maybe everyone was right about it um but I think it like I don't know I'm I feel very distant from it now but it really like it really took a drubbing in a way that when it came out felt like a uh, referendum on like my personality and like my my whole sort of like self rather than like the book as a, you know, work of, you know, art, yeah. art yeah, sep like separate from me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really hard to, that's really hard to get over. You can be like, eh, you know, those people are wrong, but it's just, it gets in there. Um, and it's a little, and it's a little bit of a block when I start to, um, you know, want to, want to be like very like honest and for forthright and, and vulnerable on the on the page um like I wrote I wrote an essay that I thought might be the lead essay in a new collection um recently and after it was published I was just like a total mess and like having panic attacks every day for a week and I was like maybe I don't want to do this to myself there's there are other options actually like there are other ways of um being in the world other than being this person who's like just a like flayed you know, <laughs> um, cadaver for people to like learn from. Um, so just exploring that, you know, thinking about that in, in therapy. Um, I, I do, I'm totally still capable though of doing things like, um, writing wise that I know are not in my best interest, like being a person in the world wise. 
So who knows? I don't know. Stay tuned. I do. I do really. I do really like writing novels, but I already feel distant enough from this one that I'm like, how? I, what are novels? How do they work? I have no idea how I wrote this one, and I feel like I could probably never do it again. So I mean, that is a hundred percent how I feel. But it is nice to hear from Rufi that there does come some muscle memory at a certain point. We just have to write like five more books. <laughs> um, and then before we go to your questions, um, I thought it might be nice to share what you're reading and loving right now, just because I know everyone who has joined us today has bought both of your books and will be reading Rufy's shortly. But just in case people are wondering, what's, what is on your TBR? Well, I just, I fell in love with Wants by Lynn Strong that's coming out in July. I, it was so um, terrifying watching someone be that honest. It was like, that's where the suspense was coming from. Cause you're like, oh shit, she's going to just say it. She's going to just speak the truth. And it's, oh, and it was such a like searing experience and this absolute dispatch from like young motherhood and money and marriage and all of it. And so I highly recommend that one. Um, yeah, I would second that. It also has like a really, really tightly controlled, um, voice. Like the, like the narrator of it is just like really in charge of your experience of the book in a way that I think it's re it reads as like easy because it's very effortless to take in, but I think it was, it's actually very hard to achieve. Um, I, you guys, I just finished, I got a, like a net galley of, um, Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld, um, because I did a, one of these with her yesterday. So as a, like, because I, I didn't, I used it as a justification for like, um, getting an early copy of the book, which comes out in May and like, holy shit, you guys, like everything, like the world is going to just explode when that book comes out. It's, people are going to hate it and people are going to love it it's not going to be any in between and it's not I think necessarily going to correlate to how people feel about Hillary Rodham Clinton the actual person who's alive um because it's a it's an alternative history it's the version of Hillary who exists in a in an in a universe where she did not end up marrying Bill but instead just had like a really hot and heavy um romance with him when they were at um, in law school in the seventies. Um, it's hard to read. It's like in, in parts, it's really, it's really painful to read. Um, because for a lot of reasons, um, but, but also, but also for those of us who are like, um, exactly Chelsea's age, it's a lot of feeling like you're watching your parents have sex. (laughs) that might just be me. <laughs> um, but also it's like thinking about like all of the different things that could have um, been true in our country that like aren't true right now is um, fucking excruciating. Um, anyway, I, I just literally couldn't recommend any book more highly. It was so transporting that I uh, stayed up until 1.30 in the morning finishing it, which is like, as 
as much of an act of like overt self-harm for me in my current like non-negotiably waking up with the kids at six in the morning life as like drinking bleach drinking bleach (laughs) (laughs) yeah I don't know and I don't know what I'm I don't know where I'm gonna oh I I do know where I'm gonna go next and I'm going to I'm going to read Rufy's book which is also like the next it's like in in my phone waiting for me to to read it I haven't actually read it it is just unbelievably good you have such a treat I would I I know I know I I really loved all of Ruthie's other books and I even read an early um an early version of Dear Fame um which was like an honor so yeah I'm a I'm a Ruthie head don't worry like it's gonna be you know it's not about Hillary Clinton but like we take what we can get (laughs) (laughs) okay is it is it time for questions yes so uh I will moderate the Q&A um there's two ways to ask your question you can either type it in the chat box and I will read it out loud or if you would prefer to ask it yourself um you can go over to uh raise hand that's there's a little button at the bottom of the screen i believe am i right about that um and you will pop up and i will be able to unmute you and uh let you ask your question um and please make sure your question's a question and uh please keep it brief need some jeopardy music here <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a question here from Madeline Inglis. Oh. Hi. Am I unmuted? Okay, good. Hi. Um, thank you so much for that conversation. It was so amazing to hear all of you. Um, as Stephanie guessed, I mean, I'm sure there's more writers in here. I'm a writer. <laughs> and so my question is more around craft. Um, I'm currently on the third draft, and I only... I now feel like everything is coming together and I want to change a lot already. So I'm just curious in terms of process from you all, like how many drafts you wrote, like if each draft you started from scratch or like if you were like editing heavily as you went, I'm just kind of curious about that. Well, I'm a write a lot and throw away a lotter. Um, that's sort of, I can't, if I, if I expect what I write to be good, then it's like too constipating. So I have to have complete permission for it to be bad in order to write anything. So what I tend to do is write like a bajillion versions of the first act. And then when I feel like I've nailed the first act and I know who the characters are and I know all the pieces of the story, then I kind of move from there. But even once I finished, I mean, I probably do like at least four drafts before I even show it to my agent. And then I'll probably do like two drafts with my agent and then multiple versions with my editor. So it's, um, I think it's normal for it to take a novel, you know, 12 drafts to get into a a polished state or it's normal for me. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah. Same deal. Basically. yeah. Okay, our next question is from Emily White. I'm unmuting you, Emily. Hi. Um, 
I was just wondering if the three of you could talk about your process writing, similar note to what was just asked, except for I'm a graduate student who's graduating in the fall with my uh, master's in creative writing. And so I have a huge deadline and the world is looming. So I was just wondering if you could talk about your process, especially in a time like this. Thank you. Um, oh, sure. Uh, um, I just, I just wrote, um, something about, uh, how to keep going with your writing, uh, even right now with everything. Um, uh, it was, uh, like a newsletter for LitHub, and I think they'll post it on their site eventually, um, maybe in the next, like, week or so. But basically, I was, like, it's, like, just a rundown of my, like, tricks that I do to, to get myself to write sort of, like, in the, in the same way that you, like, put on your gym clothes and, like, maybe one out of, like, five times it makes you go to the gym or, like, go outside and run around or whatever. Um, uh, one of them is to, uh, like, really, really, I know you don't have this option because you actually have to turn something in, but to like lower the bar for yourself on a day to day and not have um, concrete goals, like, and that we're, because those are just like opportunities to feel like a failure. Like the, the thing about like, I have to do a thousand words, like I have to write for an uninterrupted hour. Like I've been in phases where that kind of stuff has worked for me, but sometimes it just makes me hate myself and it doesn't actually make me more um, like creative or productive productive is such a like gross word um so yeah um the the number one trick the thing that's been working for me recently um is to keep a dream journal um because it's uh so writing in my dream journal the writing that I do there is like so bad and so boring that and also like dreams don't make any sense um, that I'm never tempted to, I'm never like, is this something? I'm like, I'm like, this is garbage. <laughs> this is like my brain taking out the garbage. Um, and, but it just, it just, it just, in terms of like, we're talking about like muscle memory, it like makes you sit in front of your computer and type words. And that turns out to be the, the thing that's important about it, not like the actual, um, content of it. Um, it, you know, it's, it, because it, it does, it's like it's just achievable enough it's like it's basically like setting a new year's resolution of like i will brush my teeth every day you know which i've done in the past. i hope I any, think of, any of that works for anyone <laughs> i wrote i wrote down dream journal i'm, I'm very <laughs> into this 100 percent. okay rufi what do you think oh well for me it's all about um being like obsessed like so I don't, it, trying to write just for the sake of writing for having been productive or produced pages, there's no surer way to make sure that I don't write or that what I write is bad. So for me, I, what I have to tend to is not my output, but what's going in kind of. And so it's about like curating for myself, exciting new things to read. Um, for I find reading fiction to sometimes be inspiring. It depends on the writer. Um, but there's also a lot of like jealousy and craftsmanly insight stuff going on there. So a lot of times the writing that uh, actually gets me fired up with wanting to, to write about something is like nonfiction, like, you know, history of human sacrifice or, 
um, like the future of war and what kind of weapons are going to be developed or just whatever random reading. And then you get excited and you start getting ideas and then you get obsessed. And I feel like feeding your own obsessions is the surest way to make sure that you are then producing art that you care about. I love that. <laughs> I, I'm going to chime in really quickly and just say that I've like dreamed for my whole writing life, which has been my whole life well before I was published of writing every day. I'm like, oh, this is what healthy, like fully integrated people do. They write a thousand words six days a oh, week. I don't do that. No, I, I know. And I, but I do, I remember in graduate school really struggling with that because I had the three jobs and the classwork. And I, um, I find that I still need to get very pregnant and I'm not just saying that because I'm pregnant. I like, I need to get very pregnant with an idea and then I can write for long stretches of time. And so yes. that would kind of correspond with Rufi's advice, which is if you're really hitting your head against a wall, read, 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 fill up with ideas, take notes, and then, you know, Right for 10 and hours if you, if you do can. all the stuff that keeps you from overthinking things, you know, like take walks, things will come to you in the shower, like go about your, mm -hmm. your life and then you'll find solutions to solve those problems. The car, ever since the I car, got oh, California, oh my God, go for a drive. All right. Next question. Uh, this is from Cecilia. When did you start identifying as a writer and feel confident in that role? Um, <laughs> any day now. <laughs> Ladies, well, do you have anything for that? I mean, yeah, I, I to be perfectly honest, I thought I spent most of undergrad. I knew, I knew since I was 15 that I wanted to write novels more than anything. Um, and when I was in um, college, it was more about trying to understand what job I could get that would allow me to write novels. And so I had this idea that I was going to be an academic and then somehow write novels in the summer. And like, I think Iris Murdoch helped, you know, foster this illusion that that would be possible. But it was when I was really like looking at like, am I going to apply for a PhD in something that I don't even want to be my main career so that I like, why don't I try just writing novels and see what happens? So then I applied to MFA programs and I didn't get in, but then I applied again the next year and I did get in. And I thought like, well, that was the beginning of really becoming a writer. Like, and I, I then by the time I left, I was like, I have nothing. I'm a waitress at Ruby's. And none of that counts for anything. And, you know, I, there's nothing I can do, but just like continue to claw at writing something good in the moments when I'm not just like drinking myself to death. And so that's <laughs> what I did. Um, and I don't think that I really had any assurance that it was going to work um, until I sold the girls from Corona Del Mar. And even you think, you think after you publish one book that you're done and now you've made it to the promised land, but then you're like, well, am I going to get to publish a second one? Like there's just, there's no guarantees. And you realize like you're just at the start of the journey when you thought you were at the finish line. Yeah, always. It just seems like 
you know, you like kill all the, the, like the biggest monster and then it just like bumps you up to like the next level of the video game where the monster is even bigger. <laughs> um, I, I was, yeah, I, I went through a similar process of like being really, actually, I mean, maybe this isn't, isn't at all like what you, what you were describing because you knew that you wanted to try novels when you were 15. Um, I was really in denial about wanting to be a writer. Um, and I, and I actually knew a lot of people who did want to write novels when they, when they were 15 and, and said it and like, were and we're really sure of it. Um, and I was like, well, I'll figure out that's their thing. Like I'll have to sort of figure out what my thing is. Um, and when I came to New York, I wanted to be a comic book artist and I was really into being a cartoonist. Um, which I, t I totally go like months and years without thinking about it at all because it's so distant from what my life is like now. Um, and I don't even like doodle on a notepad these days, which is, I guess, sad. Um, but I, at a certain point, I figured out that um, the people who did that as a profession were a lot better than at it than I was and that it like was just a lot easier for them than it was for me. It was like really, really, it was always really, really hard for me. and. Um, and it never get and it never got any easier. Like I never, I didn't have that thrilling sense of like mastering a skill and then getting better and better at it. It was just like I'm okay at this and I keep being okay at it. Um, and then I just realized that I could do just the writing part of like I just made I made it way too complicated for myself. Um, anyway, yeah. So that so at at some point, whenever the yeah, whenever the cartoon part fell away and only like the word bubbles were left I was like I guess I might be a writer <laughs> um yeah all right uh our next question is from Jordan this is for all three of you is there one thing you want your readers to know before they begin your books hmm. interesting question Is it from Jordan Rodman? Yes. <laughs> I'll let you guys go. That is an interesting question. She's like trying to get us to do PR. <laughs> <laughs> what I would want them to know. I don't know. I love heading in. You know, one of the things that I love about, um, I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I have a lot of, folding laundry, walking dogs, driving children places time, and uh, not enough reading time. And so the audiobooks kind of fill that gap. And I love that I head in knowing absolutely nothing. I don't have jacket copy. I didn't like scan the first page. I can barely see the cover. It's like this big on my phone. And then you just sort of like are plunged into that other world. So I don't know that I like spend a huge amount of time thinking about what someone should know before they start reading. Um, I guess just like if there's anything that I find myself always telling people, it's like, but they're funny. Like my books are super dark, but they're, but they're, they're funny too. So it's not like an absolute downer would be my, my selling point to anybody's aunt or whatever. Yeah, I, would, I was going to say the exact same thing because I'm always, I think when I'm picking up books in a bookstore and like just reading the first page, I'm like, okay, but does this person have a sense of humor at all? Like that's all, <laughs> all I'm ever looking for. Um, so, yeah. I mean, even if it's a Holocaust memoir, I'm like, but 
But how like how wry are they able to be about this? That's just me. All right, we've got a hand raise from Rebecca Johnson. Rebecca, I'm gonna unmute you. Hi, thanks go. for taking my question and thanks for all of the great information you three have given us so far. Um, I'm also joining from the query trenches. So I was gonna ask you, what was your querying process like? How many people or how many agents did you query? And like, how did you get through it? Thank you. What was your path like, Emily? Um, I have worked in book publishing. So I was like, um, I had I had worked in book publishing before I um, started working on my on my first like my first job out of college was that I worked at a, at a publishing house. So I knew so I knew a lot of agents already. Um, and I, so I was, so I was really lucky in a way because I didn't have to like go on like awkward blind dates with people, with agents, because I had already done that because so much of what you do as a young editor is go out to lunch with agents, which is like really awkward and, and really, and, and really nerve wracking. Um, because if you have no chemistry with someone, you still do have to sit there and like have like, a, you know, hour and a half long, like interaction with them. Um, but, um, so yeah, that's how I, so that's, I just, I just knew Mel from that and, and we were like kind of, kind of friends, um, which we still are like friend, friendly. <laughs> um, no, I, yeah, so that's, so that's like the most inside baseball, not very helpful, um, thing ever. Um, I do like to connect people. I mean, I try, I, I do a lot of like yentaing and in my like pub and in my publishing life that I still have where I, I work on other people's books I like to try to um, connect people with the right age and just emphasize to them that like if you really are feeling like you're not vibing with something there are lots of other people out there and it like might it just might not be you know the right fit like it, it it's like an important relationship and you are um you know uh making money for them um so it's it's like they they're getting some they're getting something from you um so it's not like they're doing you it like it's important during the process i think to remember that like they're not they're not doing you a favor and like it's and you shouldn't feel like you are importuning them or or like taking up too much of their time because like they need you you know and they would be lucky to represent you you're telling yourself that I want to jump in on that just sorry Rufy just because you reminded me I did I cold queried you know 24 people and I would send emails out in bunches of five or seven but I queried Mel, the agent that Emily and I share, because I was a huge fan of Emily's work. And another author, Mel represents Kate Zambrano, who has a really brilliant book coming out in May called Drifts. And I do think it's important when you're querying to be specific, to look at people's who people whose careers you admire, writers that you think like you could sit down and have a conversation with and look at who their agents are. Because when I look back, some of these agents I was querying were just so blatantly wrong, but I just felt like I had to send out letters. And I think it's like, figure out 
make it specific as opposed to the like dumping letters into the world. <laughs> well, and that's kind of the thing that I always feel like ha- I, I, that's what I want to say essentially is that I didn't understand, um, like, I thought it was as simple as like, well, do you think it's saleable? Do you think it's like a, like a good book? Then if it is, shouldn't you be willing to sell it? You know, why wouldn't you? And people would say, you know, I'm just not in love. And I was like, well, do you, is that what you have to be? You have to be like in love. And the thing is that you do, because that relationship is like a, you know, hopefully it's a career long kind of marriage and it does have to be a love match. That person has to want to know what you're writing next badly enough that they will deal with all of your anxiety and like read multiple drafts of things that aren't very good. And they have to be able to go into a room and fight for you and believe that you like deserve the world and convince other people that your book is good. And so it really has to be so much more of a love match than I understood. And I think that I wound up getting super lucky because I decided to start with my dream agent kind of. And so um, I was totally obsessed with her. Like her roster of writers was like my all-star team. And she was just way, way out of my league. And I wrote this completely insane, inappropriate, overly personal email. I think there was like a part in it where I talked about having earlier that day, like figured out that I had baby poop smeared on my forehead. And like, I didn't know how many hours it had been there. And that I was living in this world where I had no idea what I could say to her that would possibly make her want to read my book, but that I couldn't not try kind of. And so then she read it and just, it was from the slush pile and then she became my agent. And so, um, I think that part of the reason that that improbable thing happened is because I was obsessed with her very genuinely. (laughs) And so it was a, a love match, at least like on my end. All right, I've got uh, quite a few more questions. How many more do you guys want to do? Two or three? Um, that sounds good. Yeah, I saw I saw one in the chat that I thought was really interesting, or a couple in the chat that I thought were really interesting. Go ahead. You want to read them? Um, well, someone um, uh, this uh, the the name is Ellis Family, so it's probably a shared account. Um, asks if we struggled with during the process of writing these books with the notion that it wasn't the right way to apply our energy or to change the world given the political climate and the ways in which people in which bodies and vulnerable people are under attack like is writing is writing a politically meaningful way to engage the world when the world is on fire I just thought that was a really interesting question (laughs) um I put it to myself and my fellow panelists (laughs) you guys first. (laughs) Rufy, please. (laughs) Well, okay. I mean, fundamentally, I think two things. As a reader and as a devotee of literature, I believe absolutely fundamentally, yes, like literature is how we reflect on human experience and what kind of, you know, beings we are and we would be lost without it. It's like the rudder of the ship. And so it's essential and people have to keep doing it because otherwise we, we, we lose our sense of what, what the meaning of life is. We have to keep taking guesses or else we'll get just totally lost. Um, and as a writer, I think like, well, no, I mean, I, it is absolutely a reasonable objection to say, 
Um, if you, if you really wanted to do good works, you would do good works. You wouldn't write a novel. Writing a novel is not putting food in anybody's mouth. It's not signing anyone up to vote. It's, it's, um, in that sense, it, it is always, um, it's not exactly like this courageous, um, direct way of helping. Um, so I, I kind of feel both ways about it. I kind of agree. I mean, I do, I, the difference between kind of concrete acts of service that you're talking about or um, very physical, tangible ways of showing up in the world for your community and for other people, they can make, writing, I mean, which writing is just seem hopelessly narcissistic. I do believe in everything you were saying about literature, and I deeply believe in the expansion of empathy through reading. And so as far as like overall, as a shift in energy in the current climate that we live in, reaching out towards other people, I think is a really great thing. I think it is an antidote to isolation, to this kind of detrimental individualist thinking that we can all get into. Um, and so I do, I do think that writing novels really, really, really matters and is its own kind of act of service. But what do you think, Emily? Um, I have I have all kinds of really like deeply conflicting thoughts about this and it's something that I think about a lot especially like in the past um, three years it's something that I've thought about a lot <laughs> um and I'm sure a lot of people who do things that aren't materially um like on the ground um helpful have also spent spent a lot of time um, you know, just sort of like wondering whether there's any point to what to what we're doing. Um, I while we were talking about it, though, I kept thinking about how much easier it is to believe that the books to believe that books matter when I'm thinking about the books that I haven't written but that I've been like involved with, uh, like putting them into the world somehow. Like I really, like I really, really, really believe that the books that we published. Um, via the um, Coffeehouse Emily books in print, like those books needed to exist. And I've seen um, what they, and I've seen what those books have done, um, like as they've like made their way into the world. And I feel like they have like, even if it's something that we don't totally understand everything that they've um, made, that they have that they've caused yet there's like there's there's something more than intangible that that's that some of those books have like enacted by like coming into pe people's like consciousness and this sounds very like uh woo woo and i don't mean it that way at all i i mean i mean it like i mean it very concretely and materially that like um i don't know like just for example like that publishing miriam gerba's memoir was like in some sense, like a, a world, like a world changing act, like that, like the, the people who read that book, like had their minds changed in a way that will like change the, their actions and their perceptions for, for the rest of their lives. I think I really believe that. Um, and it's much easier to feel that way about books that are not your own. Not books. Yours. 
Um, but just the fact that that's like a thing, a thing that books can do. I think it's like, it's something that's more radical than like creating empathy, which is like, you know, that's, that's great. But sometimes when you create empathy, it stops there, you know, and people, and people sometimes feel like, oh, well, I understand, I, I like, I know about this. And so like, I don't have to do anything else. <laughs> mm. Um, but, uh, there yeah I, I do feel like literature has like a radical potential it also doesn't have to it also can just be something that people like you know share and it's like a way of transmitting one person's consciousness to another just having a break from the like voice in your own head is something that can be really like good uh for people like it's good that that it's good that that exists it doesn't need to have any like uh it doesn't necessarily need to have any like redeeming um, value beyond that. Like I would fight for it to its right to exist just as that without any other sort of like, um, like holy, you know, moral like aspect. I don't know. So, but those are like, those are, so I said two totally different things, but I, for me, they like co coexist peacefully in my mind because I'm a Libra. <laughs> All right, how about uh, one more question from the chat? Let's see. Oh, we've got a lot of directions here. Do you guys want to do more publishing business or something a little bit more fun? Anything. All right, this one's from Leah. I'm a writer too in my early 30s thinking a lot about motherhood and how it would influence my writing life. What's your experience and how do you still find the space and place to write? Well, I mean, this is something that we have direct, all three of us direct experience with. I wrote The Girls from Corona Del Mar mainly while I was pregnant with my first and then sort of rewrote it and finished it when he was a baby. Luckily he was a very good sleeper because um, we could not afford, you know, childcare of any kind. Um, so I have, there are periods where your child is little, um, especially from like 12 months to two and a half, where they will not leave you alone. And so if you have childcare, you can carve out time to write. If you don't, then you will be slowed down by it because you will not have, um, even the headspace to to generate ideas. That being said, I feel like motherhood has made me such a better person, um, such a more patient person, um, a more curious person. And so I feel like my work has been vastly improved by having had the life experience of, you know, raising kids. And then the other thing that I think is not as apparent is that they get older and then they go to school and it's a whole different ball game. And I feel like Emily is still like in the thick sometimes, of being sometimes they go to smother. Yeah. If they're school. Yeah. Ideally they well, go to but, school. I mean, there's this really narrow window because then they start not wanting to even hang out with you like really fast. So they're like, uh, yeah, bye. I want to like go hang out with my friends. I want to go play Minecraft or whatever it is. And so then you're like fighting. So they're like, well, what about family game night? Like, let's play Monopoly. So I think that um, I could not have conceived of how quickly I would regain my liberty. To me, it felt like I had lost it forever. 
and that I was like doomed always to have other beings literally like sucking the energy out of my body. It's very reassuring and thank you. (laughs) I just don't believe people when they're like, it goes by so quickly. I under, my son is 16 months. No, I know it doesn't. It, and in a way, but I also, I'm like, these have, this is the longest 16 months of my life. I've lived oh, like for sure. four decades and it will never. And because I'm having another one, especially it just is starting that clock over again. But, um, I do, I do know that school, what happens? They, it just is so much easier all of a sudden. Um, yeah. I think three is way, hard. everyone says terrible twos and twos are hard. I think three is way harder. And then four, you're like, well, we're having a delightful conversation about robots while we're in a restaurant. No one's throwing anything or anything, you know? Right. And this, no. no, not your experience. <laughs> <laughs> I, just have, I just have a particularly spicy child. I'm sure the second one actually is going to be like this. The second one who is almost two and the older one is almost five. The second one will like pick up the toy that his brother has like flung across the room in rage and he'll like gently put it back where it belongs. So like he is just lawful good and like came out of the womb that way and has it has nothing to do with. Anything. I know. Isn't that so weird how they just come out, how they come out? It's bananas. I was going to say like my one, um, rah, rah, yay motherhood thing vis-a-vis like being a writer, all questions of like how much of your soul and time it sucks, like just shoving them to the side and pretending they don't exist for just one tiny moment. Um, is that just like hormonally, um, and psychologically, maybe even phys- physically, um, physiologically, the changes that you go through, um, in terms of like pregnancy and childbirth and then like, you know, early postpartum and like when the child is older, it's really good for fiction because you get to experience what it's like to be a whole lot of different people. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it sounds like a joke, but I think it's, I really that I feel that like I, I, I feel like when I think of like just what my headspace was like you know like a year and a half ago I'm like yeah don't relate to her at all kind of a stranger to me that's useful actually like that's a useful experience for me method acting kind of <laughs> all right well I have one last question for you all um, and it's a simple one uh, what's been giving you strength through this quarantine times? My kid I that mean, I was just complaining about. Uh-huh. <laughs> my, my like terrible 16 month old tyrant that doesn't, you know, allow me to be the person that I aspire to be all the time in the, in my writing life is a hundred percent giving me life right now. I, he, um, yeah, you know, how parents feel about their kids. I don't need to go into that, but I can't really think of anything else. Some good books, perfect tunes and the knockout scene. Actually, that's my answer. I was going to say, um, woodworking videos on YouTube. I'm really (laughs) into that. Um, I think, no, I mean, from, from a fundamental place, there's something about your priorities that just change once you have kids, where as long as they're okay, like they're physically alive and okay, then you're like, well, okay, we're all right then. Like, as long as that's okay, we'll keep going with this. And I think it it just must be really hard 
to be left alone in your adult headspace all the time with a com- continuous access to the news, you know, because then they go to bed and then I get access to the news and I freak myself out so badly that I won't be able to sleep. And that's where the woodworking videos come in. That's mm. when you need them because it's very soothing to watch. So you're like, I didn't know that's how you made a cabinet. I feel so like inspired by how easy it is to make a cabinet. Plus they have cool tools. I I will have to I will have to check those out. Um I'll I be the best ones. The um I really my even in um normal or, or normal-ish times, um for as long as it's existed, um, Who Weekly has been my favorite podcast. And like now more than ever somehow, uh Who Weekly is still my favorite podcast. I think because this is so deeply sad, maybe um, but it like for me it scratches the itch of like um so- socializing with adults who aren't my <laughs> <laughs> my like imaginary my like imaginary podcast friends like that I get to hang out with I'm uh, you know it, and it's I like I yeah it's like a maybe slightly unhealthy relationship where like the, like the like the other day one of the hosts um said that he had never watched the Sopranos and I had to stop myself from like immediately like calling the hotline of this podcast to just <laughs> To be like, okay, so here's how you should watch The Sopranos, and just like giving like specific detailed advice about like what you know. Anyway, so because I, I and how like how bonkers is it that he hasn't watched The Sopranos? It's like how bad do things have to get before you watch The Sopranos? Like, it's you were waiting for a rainy day. Like it's raining. It's <laughs> raining. Watch The Sopranos. Like out of the vault I might watch The Sopranos again like I've already <laughs> been through the whole thing twice in two, in two different relationships and you have to watch it with someone that you're in a relationship with so that you can talk about it it's like the only actual real advice that I have yeah that's all that's all I got um, excellent answers all um thank you so much for being here with us today uh I I wish that I could ask the audience to applaud but I can't. So maybe everyone can just say thank you or drop a clapping emoji in the chat and we'll pretend <laughs> that we're having an applause. Thank you, guys. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.